Lord's Prayer and uh, we'll get started. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning I want to uh, uh, speak to you from the book of, of John, the Gospel of John in the very first chapter. So if you have your Bible, uh, you can go ahead and turn there. Uh, there are uh, scriptures in your notes and we'll have it on the screen, of course. Uh, but I want to give you a little bit of context uh, before we get into the text this morning. Um, we are going to be reading from the Gospel of John, but we're going to be talking about John the Baptizer. Okay, these are two different people. Most of you, I'm sure, are aware of this, but uh, John, who is writing the gospel, also wrote, you know, he wrote uh, the gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. We call him John the Beloved. He's the one that was the closest disciple of Christ. He laid his head on Jesus's uh, chest at the, at the final supper together. Um, he is the one who is, is writing all this. He is a different person than who we're going to be talking about today. Today we're focusing a lot of our attention on John the Baptist. Um, he is the man uh, that um, was born to uh, an elderly couple. Uh, many of you know the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth. Elizabeth is the mother um, uh, of John, but she's also the cousin of Mary. You remember the story as uh, Mary is pregnant miraculously with Jesus, uh, Elizabeth is miraculously pregnant because she is far past the age of childbearing, and they go and they meet up together while they're both pregnant, and the Bible says that as Mary approaches, that the baby within Elizabeth's tummy leaps for joy. And this is John the Baptist who's filled with the Spirit from the very beginning, uh, even from the womb. Um, John's father is a guy by the name of Zacharias. He is a, uh, a priest. He is of the tribe of the Levites. Um, but because John's parents were elderly even when he was born, uh, what we gather is that his, his parents probably died when he was a child. And so what we know from Scripture is that John went away after his parents' death. He went away to uh, the wilderness, and he was raised in the wilderness. Um, what most people speculate is that he uh, found himself in the same lot with a group of people called the Essenes. Uh, now, these Essenes, they were people that were somewhat affiliated with the religious people in Jerusalem, but at some point, they had gotten so frustrated with some of the ways that the temple was being run, some of the ethical decisions that were being made, that this group of people decided they didn't want anything to do with the priesthood as it is. They felt like it was kind of corrupt. And so what they decided to do was they were going to leave Jerusalem, and they would go down to the southern part of Judea near the, uh, the, the Dead Sea. And they would find themselves in the desert, and they would live like monks for the rest of their days. There were uh, just a few thousand of these people that had done that. We call them the Essenes. They're, they're incredibly devoted to the Lord. They're dedicated to fasting. 
to prayer. Uh, most importantly, in, in our context, they were devoted to Scripture and the recording of Scripture. And so uh, most of you are aware of the, the Dead Sea Scrolls that, that we found uh, in, in the 1940s. Uh, what we understand is that the Essenes were the people who copied copies of copies of this manuscript. And so what we have in the Dead Sea Scrolls is the product of this group of people that John found himself with. And so John is, is reared, uh, maybe adopted into this community as an adolescent, and maybe for uh, up to two decades of his life, if not longer, John has dedicated himself to the presence of God, to the study of Scripture, to prayer, to all of these things. And so by the time John shows up for his public ministry, John is about the age of 30. He's about the same age of Jesus. They were only a couple of months apart. And when John shows up, he shows up uh, in a very peculiar way, okay? He was uh, obviously a priest because his father was a priest because in that day, um, you didn't go to seminary to become a priest. You were either born a priest or you were not born a priest. And so as John shows up on the scene, he's uh, not wearing the same garb that, uh, you know, the, the normal priest would wear. Um, he is not speaking in the same tone that many of the priests would wear. His voice was raspy, his, his skin, you know, worn by the weather in, in, in a desert climate. Uh, his, his diet was very strange. But there was one thing about John that caught the attention of the people, the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And that was the sheer authority, the power, the anointing that when this man stood in desert places, and he proclaimed his message that thousands and thousands of people would flock from all around the nation. I'm talking hundreds of miles to come and to hear this man's message because his power was so distinct. Jesus knew this to be true. As a matter of fact, Jesus would say this in the Gospel of Matthew. He said, I tell you the truth of all who have ever lived. I want you to consider this. Of all the men who have ever lived, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Elijah, of all the men that have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. So this man's ministry is, is, is just spreading so quickly, and it's causing a, a fervor, is stirring up some things so much so that the people in Jerusalem hear about it. And the religious leaders, the, the religious leaders send people to go investigate. They send delegates in their place, and they say, go find out what's going on. Find out if this is an insurrection, or they're going to try to overthrow Jerusalem, or what's going whatever the case is, find out who this John the Baptist is, and come back and report to us. And this is where we pick up the text. I believe we pick up in verse 6. The scripture says this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Now this was John the Baptist's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to him to inquire who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. Then they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. 
Finally, they asked him, well, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned John. Why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet? And John replied, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And all of this happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Now, Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the mighty Son of God, the Savior of our souls. We thank you for your perfect plan that you've set in motion by using this man of God, John. I pray this morning as we open text, as we uh, find some application and principle here, I want to pray for the indwelling Holy Spirit to teach us your ways. I pray, Lord, that my voice in some way would be set aside and that the voice of the Spirit would be manifest in a greater measure than what we can realize. And so please bless your people. Bless us this morning. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen. About once a year, my family and I uh, meet up with my sister's family and my mom and her husband. And uh, there's about 15 or 16 of us when, when you get everybody together, and so it's, it's really a party. Um, and uh, this past summer, or this summer, I guess, uh, in June, we decided that we were going to uh, pull money together, get a lake house up in the, in the upstate, and uh, we spent two or three days there, and it was, it was, it was amazing. Um, my mom's husband, his name is Doug. We call him Dougie. The grandkids call him Dougie. And uh, he has been so good to... to my kids, he's, he's a great grandpa to, to uh, all of the kids. Um, but every time we get together, Dougie uh, does this thing. Um, you ever have a family member who just has like this thing that they always do? He, he has this thing. Um, but it's a good thing. And he, uh, he always challenges the boys in our family. Okay, so we have three teenage boys in our family. My sister has two and my son, Easton, who is almost 15. And um, he always challenges them. Okay, so like one time, uh, you know, well, when we were at the lake house, we were sitting out back on the balcony, and um, he looked at one of the boys, and he said, hey, listen, if you jump off the balcony and you don't break your leg, I'll give you $100, you know. Um, and, and that's the way most of the challenges are. They're like, uh, you know, we got to pull the boys back, because the boys are like, I can do it, I can do it. I'm like, you're dumb, you can't do it, you know, and so... Thankfully, they didn't jump off or anything like that. But, you know, he'll say if you, you know, if you uh, throw your, your grandmother in, in the water, I'll, I'll give you 50 bucks, each of you, you know, whatever. And thankfully, they didn't do that. Um, and so he always does this, and it's a lot of fun. It, it creates a lot of laughs because the boys are always like, how can I do this or get around it or whatever. And so uh, the last day of our trip, we're, we're at a restaurant, and uh, we get this back room because there's so many of us, you know. And um, Dougie calls over 
one of the nephews and my, my son Easton. And uh, he says to the nephew, he looks across the restaurant, he says, you see that girl over there? And there were, there were two um, gorgeous, you know, high school girls. They were probably, you know, seniors in high school, well out of the league of these two boys, okay? Um, in appearance and in, and in age, okay? Um, and uh, so he calls him over and he says, you see those girls over there? So yeah, he said, I'll give you $100 if you go and get her number. And so the boys are just like, cha-ching, you know? And um, so they start talking and they start trying to devise a plan. And in my mind, I'm like, there's no plan, just do it, cash in. But as, as amazing as there, there, there's a little bit of hesitancy dealing with young ladies, especially that much older and, and that pretty, you know, and so there's a little bit of hesitancy. And so three or four times they go to Dougie and they're, they're asking clarifying questions. Well, what if, I, what if I just say hi? You know, nope, not good enough. You got to get her number. And they go back and they devise and they come and ask other questions and all this stuff. About 20 minutes into it, I looked over at Dougie. I said, it ain't going to happen. Like, they're, they're not going to do it. It's fine. And we kind of, we all kind of laughed about it. And then all of a sudden, my, my son Easton walks over to Dougie, and I'm sitting right beside Dougie, so I hear the conversation. And he says, uh, Dougie, he says, do you have like a $100 bill or do you have 520s? And I'm thinking, I'm like, this is super bizarre. Like, does it matter? Money spends the same, you know? And he says, well, I have both. And he says, okay, well, if you give me the 520s, I'll go right now and I'll get her number. No more, no more hesitating, no more whatever. So Dougie says, okay. So he pulls out 520s and he gives it to Easton. And Easton goes over to the girl and he says, hi, my name's Easton. My cousin over there wants your phone number and I'll give you 20 bucks if you give it to me right now. Right? I have raised him well. Um, I got to get the kid to Vegas or something. I don't know. Pray for me. Um, and he did. He came back over. It was so funny. Like the, the girls were with their families. I guess they were on vacation too. And the dad, when everybody kind of found out what had happened and what was going on, the dad on the other side looked at me and he just went. <laughs> As if I had done something well, you know. And... Um, I started thinking about that, and I thought, you know, what was the difference here? Like, what was the difference? And, and it's a simple truth, but, but it's a profound truth, and it's, it's simply this. Um, Easton walked away with 80 bucks in his pocket. Actually, it, he walked away with 100 bucks because about five minutes later, the girl came back over to the table, gave Easton back the money, and said, and you can keep my phone number, and walked away. I was like, let's go. Um, but, but here, I'm bringing this in. So the point of what I'm trying to say is this. The question that came up is, why, why was this so unique? Why did, you know, how did it all transpire like this? And, and the simple truth is this, the simple principle is this, is that Easton found a way to think differently than everybody else in that room. He found a way to think differently. And not only did he find a way to think differently, but he acted differently because he thought differently. And I want to talk to us this morning about the new world that we live in and how we must be a people that continue the quest of 
not only thinking different, and when I say different, I mean different from the world. I mean thinking differently and acting biblically. I think that we have to lean ever stronger into this for this reason. We live in a new world. It's a new society. I'm in my early 40s when, when I was uh, growing up for most of my life. We lived in a society that even if they didn't follow Jesus or condone everything that Christians did, there was a respect. There was a belief or, or excuse me, there was a respect for the beliefs that we had. There was, you know, an honor for the values that we carried because we were considered good and, and godly people. And again, not, not that everybody followed Jesus, but even people who didn't recognized us in a certain category. And the trouble is, is that the world has changed and it's no longer like that anymore. And our families are being raised in a culture that is increasingly hostile not only to the Christian message, but to Christians. And we are classified, even within our own ranks sometimes, as being archaic in the way that we think or being intolerant in the way that, that we believe or even unloving in the way that, that we act sometimes. And I will say this, there have been times where Christians had, have way acted out of bounds and not acted biblically. But as a whole, we are seeing this infestation of culture that is attempting to corrupt who we are at our very core. And I just want to submit today that, that I think that if we're going to not only survive this new world, but thrive and truly be the salt of the earth in a new generation, we've got to be a people who were committed to thinking biblically and living biblically. Listen, one of the popes was, was known for making a statement that went something like, as the church goes, so goes the nation. And that's absolutely true. I believe that. But I want to take it back another layer. And I want to say, as the family goes, so goes the church, so goes the nation. And I know that politics matter and I know that we need strong politicians, but we need stronger families. We need men and women of God who are raising men and women of God who will then later raise men and women of God. And we live in a culture that's hostile to the way that we should be thinking and the way that we should be living and the way we should be acting. And I think today as we look at the life of John, who was in a hostile culture, not only, not only in the culture of culture, but even in the religious culture, John was taking heat. But I think what we find in the life of John is, a, is a very, just a very simple set of principles, and it's, and it's this, if you'll stay with me. I think that John understood who he was in the Lord, and John also understood who he wasn't. And with this understanding married together, he understood how he should live scripturally, okay? So, so follow me when I say this. I believe that a modern day, when you as a woman of God know who you are in Christ and you know who you're not, you take that knowledge and it influences how you live. Even in a culture that is anti or critical of the way that you choose to live, and I'll tell you why. I believe that John, he found it so easy, at least from our perspective, to be different, to be an alien, to be a foreigner in his own homeland. 
he found it so easy to navigate that. Why? Because he wasn't living for what other people told him he was. And he wasn't trying to be something he wasn't. He knew who he was. He knew who he wasn't. And it influenced how he lived. And he committed himself, knowing the role that I play. What does scripture say about how I should live? And he did it. And he did it emphatically and he did it powerfully. And so today, all I want to do in the time that we have is I want, to, I want to show you how John knew who he was, knew who he wasn't, how it influenced his life. And then what I want to do is I want to take us down that same journey of knowing who we are, who we're not, and how it should influence our life. John, in your notes, knew who he wasn't. The Sanhedrin had every right to investigate John. They were the religious governing body in Jerusalem, and anytime some type of new spiritual fervor came about, they were the ones sent to investigate it, and they had every right to investigate it. Um, I take up no issue with that. But there was something different about John that caused a greater level of concern for them, so much so that they would go to him and they would ask him some pretty provocative questions. They would go to him and they would say three different times. They would say, are you the Messiah? In other words, they weren't, they, they weren't just asking if he was Messiah or speculating. They were curious what he would say about being Messiah. He admitted, no, I'm not Messiah. He knew who he was. They said, well, are you Elijah incarnate? Are you Elijah that's been raised from the dead? We're expecting Elijah to come before the Messiah. Are you him? John said, no, I'm not I'm not Elijah. They said, well, are you the prophet? We know a prophet's coming. Maybe, maybe it's not Elijah. Maybe it's somebody else. Are you, are you the prophet that's coming for the Messiah? He said, no, I'm not that. And in this, what we find, this is very, very important. Listen to me because this is why it's important. It is, it is equally important for us to know who we are not as it is for us to know who we are. Okay? And, and I'll explain that in, in just a second. But John knew who he was not. He refused to take a position that was higher than what had been appointed to him. He wasn't gonna try to usurp and take the position of Messiah. He knew he wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't even gonna try to join the ranks of a, a prophet or Elijah. He knew that. Now, there were some of John's disciples who were going behind John's back and they were preaching to kind of their gathering and they were trying to convince people that John was Messiah. They were, they were saying things like, you know, he is Messiah, he's just kind of too humble to admit it or he hasn't realized that he's Messiah yet. But John emphatically knew that he was not Messiah. So he refused to take a position higher than what was appointed, but he also refused to take a position that was lower than appointed. He knew he wasn't at this level, but he also knew he wasn't at this level. He knew that he wasn't called to be some benign person who just lived and, you know, in mediocrity or anything like that. He knew that there was a call and there was a mission, there was a destiny on his life. And so he would, not, knowing who he wasn't, allowed him to operate in who he was. And so he would speak boldly and he would speak with authority and he would walk in righteousness all the way to the point where they ended up taking his life because of who he was. Man, what a, what, or excuse me, because he wasn't. What a, what a powerful reminder for us that there are some things that people expect us to be that we're just not and we will never be because we don't have the capacity to be. There's a, a role that you and I play as individuals, understanding our place 
And we must play that role to the best of our ability. It reminds me of what Charles Spurgeon one time said. He said, if, if God has called you to be a servant, don't stoop so low to be a king. What he was saying, he was saying, listen, know who you are, know who you're not. Because understanding who you're not is almost as important as knowing who you are. So John knew who he wasn't. But number two in your notes, and I think the notes, I think I, I messed up there. It, I think it twice it says John knew who he wasn't. But the second one should say John knew who he was. And in fact, he did. He said, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. This is a prophetic utterance given by Isaiah and the prophet Malachi hundreds of years beforehand. And it carries this idea that John was a forerunner. He was to go before the great Messiah and he was to prepare the way. In modern vernacular, we would, we would say he was kind of like a bulldozer, you know. Um, back in his time in Palestine, uh, they didn't really have roads the way that we have roads today. They weren't, you know, paved and they weren't, you know, cobblestone or whatever the case may be. Uh, they didn't have great roads back then. They were just dirt, you know. At best, they were dirt. And um, so anytime that there was royalty who was going to go into an obscure, you know, small town or into, you know, a little village or something like that, if the people found out there was royalty that was coming into that village, they would gather together a group of men who were called forerunners. And these men would go and they would know whatever, you know, path the royalty was going to travel. And they would go down the path and they would take out roots and, you know, sticks and they would remove large stones and they would fill the gaps and they would try to smooth it out. In other words, they would make way for royalty as forerunners. And this is exactly who John knows himself to be. He says, I'm not the royalty that's coming I'm making way for the royalty. And I'm not making uh, way for royalty on highways. I'm making room for, loyal, for royalty through heartways. And his ministry solely consisted of this, of calling people to righteousness away from sin, clearing their heart so Messiah would have a place to come and rest so that when Messiah began to speak, their hearts were already ready. It reminds me of the scripture, I believe it's in the book of Joel, that, that talks about the, the fallowed ground. This is why we have praise and worship before we have the preaching of the word. It's, it's kind of this idea that uh, uh, scripture says that, that, that we need to break up the fallowed ground and the, the word and language that's used and all this. It, it indicates that there are some things that can't be planted until the hardness is broken up. And the forerunner, his purpose was to, was to tenderize, was to break the shell of hardness off the hearts of people so that the seed of the word of God from Messiah could be planted and bear fruit. This was John's role, and he knew it. John knew he wasn't Elijah, although Jesus would say that he has come in the spirit of Elijah. He knew he wasn't that. He knew he wasn't Messiah, but he did know who he was, and he was to be the forerunner for the Messiah. And this information... This knowledge, this understanding of John understanding who he was and understanding who he wasn't, it, it, it influenced the way that he lived. Because listen to me, says, he knew who he was, he knew who he wasn't. And so he looked to the scripture and says, the role that I have to fulfill, how, how does God dictate that I should fulfill that role with this knowledge that I have? And this is how it influences John. John's entire life since he meets Jesus 
begins this spiral of counterintuitiveness. John begins to do things that a man of his stature would never do in our world today. You're talking about the two greatest men who have ever lived, and somehow they find a way to work together. But John found his way in this. He knew because of who he was and because of who he wasn't, he knew that scripture would dictate that he lived differently, listen, than what was expected of him by the culture. They expected, listen, they expected the same of John, of Jesus. As Messiah, they had all these crazy expectations that Messiah is going to come. He's going to overthrow the government. There's going to be an insurrection. He's going to establish a physical kingdom. They had all of these political ideologies, all these things that they, they thought in their mind they expected Messiah to do. But Messiah took a counterintuitive uh, approach just as John the Baptist would do. So instead of John rising to a greater level than that was appointed to him, this is what he does. When he recognizes that he's just a forerunner for the Messiah, John releases his desire to be known for popularity. From the moment we see John recognize Jesus as the Messiah, what does he do? He instantly begins to deflect attention to Jesus. He says, I know that you've all come out to be baptized, and I'm going to baptize you, and you've come to hear the word, now I'm going to preach to the word, but behold, the Lamb of God, who is far greater in excess of who I am the one that takes away the sins of the world. I can't even unstrap his, his sandals. That's how unworthy I am. John begins to release the desire to, to be known, to be famous, to have renown in his world. He releases the desire to be secure in who he is. Listen to me, you realize that as Jesus shows up on the scene, John begins losing disciples left and right. The Bible says one of the first disciples that leave John, and you've got to understand, in that culture, to have a disciple was to have a son. It, it wasn't this, uh, you know, teacher-classmate relationship that, well, they're a student and I care for them. No, this is my family. We live together and we do life together and I nurture him and he honors me. And so for John to lose his disciples to Jesus, and listen to me, he never said a word about it. John wasn't Messiah. He wasn't perfect. I'm sure there was some insecurity that flared up. There were some flickers of like, what is going on here? But John never verbally contested when his disciples wanted to follow Messiah. Why? Because he knew who he was. He knew who he wasn't, and it influenced his life. And so he released the desire to be secure. You realize one of the first disciples to leave John was a guy by the name of Andrew. Andrew is the brother of Peter, who would be one of the closest 12 of Jesus. This is one of the first disciples that leave John. He was a disciple of John before he was ever a disciple of Jesus. But John let it go. He said, no, I, I'm not going to get upset. I'm not going to get frustrated. I know who I am. I know who I'm not. And this is my role to play, and I must play it with obedience. John released the desire for worldly things. He released the desire to fit into the customs of this world. He spoke boldly against evil and wickedness, not only to a sterile religion, that Judaism had become in large measure, but to the corruption of politics so much so that it would cost him his head. John released the desire to achieve more than appointed. He focused on simply doing the will of God. John released the desire to walk in unbelief even when he had doubt when he was in prison that Jesus was actually the Messiah. This is a sermon in and of itself. Maybe I'll preach it one day. 
But I simply want us to understand that John let go of so much that he rightfully would have had control over simply because he knew who he was, he knew who he wasn't. And scripturally speaking, he had a role to play. And that role to play was releasing it and making room for Messiah. So, what's that mean for us? I knew you were going to ask. I want to I transition a little bit. And I want to talk about the knowledge of who we are, who we are, and how it should influence our life scripturally. Okay? Um, as we transition, these first two things where, where we talk about who we are and who we aren't, I'm speaking from a spiritual perspective. Okay? I'm talking about who we are in Christ. But when we get to the, to the final part of how it should influence our lives, it's hyper-practical. It's not really a spiritual thing. Well, I guess it is spiritual, but it's, it's a highly livable, practical application thing there. Okay, so I'm going to ask you just for the next few minutes, we're going to kind of skim through these first parts, and I really want to settle into the final part on how we should influence life. Because if you've been walking for Jesus very long, hopefully these first two sections that we go to through of who you are and who you aren't, hopefully those are already resonating within your soul. But let's go ahead and do, let's talk about who we are not. Number one... If in Christ, you are no longer under the wrath of God. Right after Jesus is giving this beautiful conversation and explanation of salvation to Nicodemus in John 3, just a, a few verses after, for God so loved the world, Jesus shows John the other side of that. And this is what he says. He says, but whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, for God so loved the world. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Right? And so here is the picture that Jesus is painting, not only so that people who are not believers will understand that there is a God of justice and there's a God of judgment, and that judgment is coming upon you, not only for unbelievers, but for believers. So that we will know where we once have come from and where our standing is today. Listen to me. We cannot understand the grace that we have been given until we understand the judgment that we deserve. You understand that? Until we really grapple with what the truest part of us deserves, we will not fully embrace all that God has done for us in appreciation. And so if we're in Christ, it's important for us to know that we're no longer under the wrath of God. Number two, if we're in Christ, it's important for us to know that we are no longer a citizen of the kingdom of darkness. We are now citizens of the kingdom of light. Now we're in a world of darkness, but we are the salt and the light of the earth. So we're no longer a part of the kingdom of darkness. Number three, if we're in Christ, we're no longer a slave to sin. The language that Jesus would use about those who were bound in sin was about people who were slaves to sin. They are bound and, and shackled and put down by sin. But for those who are in Christ are released from that slavery and they are now free as sons and daughters of the most high God. There's a freedom. There's, a, there's an experience that we have 
We're no longer this, now we are this. If we are in Christ, we are no longer separated from God. One of the most beautiful portions of scripture in in Colossians 1, this is what Paul writes. He says, yet now God has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. Listen, you understand there was a time we were unreachable in our separation from God. There was nothing and there was no one that could bring these two worlds together except a mediator, a perfect mediator in the Son of God who would come and give his life. And not just give his life, but sacrifice his own precious blood, as Peter would say. And that beautiful reconciliation has brought us together. Listen, I'm not just talking about enemies. I'm talking about arch enemies. I'm talking about equal opposites here. I'm talking about people, beings that can never be more separate. God has brought us together. We're no longer separated from God. Regardless of how it feels today and regardless of how you felt yesterday and regardless how you're going to feel next month, if you're in Christ, you're no longer separated from him. Scripture would say neither life nor death nor principalities, not darkness, not anything can separate us from the love of God who are in Christ Jesus. So, so we got to remember who we're not. And you say, well, Corey, why do you focus on telling us who we're not instead of just focus on telling us who we are? And the reason is this, is that I can't fully embrace who I am until I understand who I was. It's the idea of a butterfly. My little girls love butterflies. I love butterflies, especially the pretty ones, you know. They're ugly butterflies. I don't know if you knew that, but there are. They're, they're beautiful butterflies. My girls love butterflies. But listen to me, it's it's the same idea as if the butterfly understood what it once was as a caterpillar. It would relish in the fact that she was a butterfly today. You understand what I'm saying? And, and, And it's the idea of fully understanding who we once were and who we're not anymore in order to fully embrace who we are today. The, I know, uh, the hymn writers did such a magnificent job with helping people understand this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. Now today that word wretch doesn't mean a lot, okay? But in that day, that was about as low as you could go of being a wretch, okay? That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, But now, I'm found, I was once blind, but now I see. And so, again, we have to understand who we're not so that we can understand who we are. And I'd like to tell you a couple things that you are. If you are in Christ, you are a child of God. To all who believed and accepted him, He gave the right to become the children of God. And it wasn't like God just had a bunch of kids and was like, well, I got to take care of them. No. He adopted us. You know what adoption means? It means you go out and you seek that child. And you fight for that child. And you do whatever it takes and pay whatever costs 
to bring that baby home. And that's who we are to God. We are the children of God as sons and daughters. If we're in Christ, we are a new creation. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. We're forgiven so much so that our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. If we're in Christ, we are no longer victims, but we are victorious. We have overcome the enemy by the blood of the lamb, by the word of our testimony, and that we do not love our lives even unto the death. If we are in Christ, we are free. If we are in Christ, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. If we are in Christ, we are blessed. Paul said, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. If you are in Christ, you are free from guilt and shame because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, you're loved without separation. If you're in Christ, you're not finished. You're just getting started going from glory to glory to glory. Some of us at slower rates than others. But indeed, we all go in from glory to glory to glory. If you're in Christ, you're of the highest value. If you're in Christ, you're deeply cared for. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So much so, he would, he would say, you see the sparrows that just landed right over there? He said, man, I provide food for them. I provide flight for them. I provide oxygen. I provide shelter for them. And if I would do that for a sparrow, how much more am I willing to do that for my own children? You say, you're so loved that I know the numbers of hairs on your head. Again, some of us less and others more. But the point of what I'm trying to say is that we are deeply cared for more than we can possibly know. Listen to me. That's who you are in Christ. Emotion has nothing to do with it. And I love good emotion. I'm a very emotional person. Ask my wife. Don't ask my wife. I'm a very emotional person. I love good, raw emotion. My emotion has nothing to do with the gospel. It has nothing to do with me being born again. It has nothing to do with the shed blood of Jesus to cover my sin. And it has nothing to do with what God has called me to do in this life. I do it from obedience. I'm cared for. I'm an ambassador. And I'm secure. Listen to what John said, in, or Jesus said in John 10. He said, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me, for my Father has given them to me, and he is more powerful than anyone. So... We talked a little bit about who we are. We talked a little bit about who we aren't. So the question is, well, what kind of impact does that have on my life? Every impact on my life. The reason is, is because our spiritual standing should be reflected in our earthly living. In other words, my, the way that I live should be a reflection of what Christ has done for me, of, of, of who I am. But you know as well as I know, that's not always the case, is it? All right, let's be honest for a minute. We all know people that are Christians, right? 
but they're terrible employees. Right? They're lazy, entitled, whiny. We all know, are they born again? Absolutely. Are they going to see Jesus? Yes. Are they horrible to work with? Emphatically. The worst. Why? They don't understand these two dynamics and the impact of what it should make on how they live. We've all known men who are going to see Jesus, who have given their lives, they're saved beyond the shadow of a doubt. But at some point in their life, they become inattentive to their families. Are they going to see Jesus? Yeah, absolutely. Again, yes, 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 yes. Has nothing to do with their salvation. It has everything to do with them understanding who they were, who they are, and how Scripture tells us to live. And I want to say this. I want, to, I want you to hear my heart when I say this. Uh, today, <clears throat> these next few minutes, this is not about pointing out failures or flaws in your life, okay? Because this guy's the king of failures and flaws, okay? Remember, Jesus had a sign in three languages, the king of the Jews, king of the Jews, king of the Jews. I would have major flaw, major flaw, major issue. You know, I would have that kind of sign. I'm the king of it, okay? So in the same way that I don't want you, you know, pointing out every, every flaw or failure that I have, I'm not gonna do that to you. That's not what this is about, but I do want you to understand what it is about. It is about understanding what the scripture says, how you and I should live, and so these are more, you can call them spiritual goals, you can call them whatever you want to, but the point is, I, I, I'm trying to make, I, I'm not here today to criticize or to beat up or to anything like that. What, I, what I'm really trying to do is inspire us to live a godly life according to what scripture says. What is my role? I know who I am, I know who I'm not. What is my role in this life and what does scripture say, how does scripture say I should live as, as a response to it? That's what I'm after today. And so, Really quickly before we get into it, I want to I want to I want to recognize three different barriers. I guess you could call them. There, there are three different things that get in the way of a lot of people who love Jesus with all their heart, but they find it difficult to live according to the scriptures. Okay, you call them you know roadblocks or barriers, whatever the case is. But sometimes when when those of us who love the Lord we we run into those barriers, we just kind of stop. Instead of demolishing the barrier and going on to fulfill our destiny, we just kind of stop and we live in this moment. And so I want to I recognize three you know, major issues that I see in, in Christian culture that kind of hinder us oftentimes from, from fulfilling what God has called us to do. Number one is this in your notes. It's, it's nuances, okay? Now, the word nuance is, is not new, but in our culture, it is a new catchphrase. And what it basically says is, you don't understand my circumstances specifically. They are layered and they are difficult. And if you knew my circumstances, you would agree that I can disobey the scriptures because of all this. That's, that's what nuance means, right? You see this, this word attached a lot in the abortion discussion. Well, abortion is nuanced. Abortion is not nuanced. Situations may be nuanced, but abortion is not nuanced. Okay, especially according to scripture. And so, so we've got to find ourselves in a place where, where we understand and we empathize with, with people because of their circumstances. I understand that and, and I respect and I honor and I, I empathize on a lot of different levels. All I'm trying to say is this, is that if we are not careful as Christians, we will nuance ourselves right out of 
clear biblical instruction. We will find a way to justify why we should not live according to what God says and live according to what we want to live. And we've got to be so careful with, with understanding. And again, I'm not taking away. I understand. Every relationship, every marriage, every child, every situation, is to, it is nuanced. You can say it is nuanced. But we've got to be careful that we don't use difficult situations to justify our disobedience to Scripture. You okay? Awesome. All right, here we go. Number two. Second barrier I see that, that affects so many is, is culture. Okay, I mean secular culture. And in large measure in, in the church, in the Western church, culture has deeply infiltrated the church. We have seen, we have seen churches like denominations that have begun to interpret scripture based on the culture as opposed to interpreting the culture based through scripture, right? We, we've used culture as a lens to read the Bible as opposed to using the Bible to read the culture and what's really going on. And so what we find is we find that, that there are now situations where um, there, are, uh, there are allowances for, for certain types of immoral sexual activity, the, the, we find that there's, there's a different, maybe there's a new way that, that we should raise our children. We find uh, this incredible attack on uh, what it means to be a man biblically and what it means to be a woman biblically. This incredible visceral attack on people. And listen, let me just say this. If we are not careful in an effort to reach our culture, we will begin to reflect our culture instead of reflecting Jesus. In an effort to reach our culture, to be like our culture, to be liked and loved and palatable and understanding, in an effort to do that, we may lose everything that Scripture stands for. Well, it's just because God doesn't understand. No, God understands. God understands thoroughly. And we've got to be careful that we don't allow culture to win. Listen to me. John wasn't going to cave. Remember I told you, John was a priest. So he was born in the line of Aaron, all the way back to Moses. Aaron was like the first priest. And so, so if you were in the bloodline and the heritage of Aaron, you were a priest by default. Okay, there's nothing that, if you weren't in the line of Aaron, there's nothing you could do to get to become a priest. Okay, you just either were or you weren't. But if you were born in the line of Aaron, you couldn't get out of being a priest. You were a priest by birth. John, knowing this, steps onto the scene. And the culture said that John should live and speak and think and act in a certain way that the religious culture told him to. But John said, I understand the culture and I understand what you're doing. But I've got to do what I've got to do because of what this scripture tells me to do. John wasn't going to cave to the culture, and we can't be a people that cave to the culture either. So nuance is culture. And then finally, number three is this, other people. I cannot allow what other people do or don't do to derail me from clear scriptural instruction. Peter found himself in this boat. You remember Peter is, uh, Jesus is actually talking to Peter. He's, Jesus has already been resurrected. They're walking along, and 
Jesus begins to tell Peter how Peter's going to die. This is what the rest of your life is going to look like. This is how you're going to die. Freaks Peter out. And all of a sudden, in the state of panic, he's like, he finds John. And he's like, but what about him? What, what about him? What does Jesus say? Jesus says, Peter, look at me. He says, if I want him to stay alive until I come again, that's between me and him. You follow me. You understand what I'm saying? He's saying, it doesn't matter what other people do or don't do. I have to obey what God has spoken to me in my role. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what John's going to do. It doesn't matter what Peter's going to do. It matters what Corey's going to do, right? And it matters what you're going to do and, and how we live. And so let me just say this. As we get into, like, the, the details for the next few minutes, let me, let me just say that this is not a message where we begin to think about other people and what they do or don't do, Okay. This is about spiritual inventory of me, right? And, and, okay, I understand this about me. I understand this about me. How does this influence the way that I live? And listen to me say this. We're, we're going to talk about marriage here in a second, and I'm, like, super hyper nervous about that, okay? Um, I have a Kevlar vest on underneath. I'm just kidding. Um, so let me just say this. Um, this is, over the next few minutes, is probably not the time for amening, okay? It's not the time for, dang, that is good, Preach, Corey, yes, because what's going to end up happening is that you'll probably get divorced, okay, because you've been misunderstood, okay? So we're going to talk about all kinds of different things. All I'm saying, the time for shouting and amen was before, okay? That's not now. Smile and wave. That's like, no, don't even nod. That can be misunderstood. Just don't breathe for the next, like, 15, 20 minutes. You'll be fine, okay? We'll be fine. All right. Listen. We're all in process. We all fail. We all have flaws. We're all at different places. The only thing I want to challenge us with today is to take a step back and to say, Lord, according to my role in the scripture, am I walking in obedience to that? That's all I'm asking for today. This doesn't need to be a conversation, you know, later. You know, you don't, you don't need to look at your husband later and be like, did you hear that? You know, don't do that, okay? You don't need to, you know, look at your parents and be like, did you hear what he said? That was good. It was good. Are you obedient? No, just, just don't, okay? This is a solo self-inventory where we measure ourselves, not other people. Are you ready? Here we go. Number one, who I am in Christ should impact me as a spouse, Now, I'm not going to have a lot of commentary on this because I'm afraid, okay? No, I'm, I'm not afraid, but I'm afraid of being misunderstood. And this deserves like, you know, four weeks of teaching just these verses. But I do want to read the scripture to you. And I'll add a little bit of commentary. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, God calls you to love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This selfless, self-denying, servant leadership type of role is what God calls us, those of us who are husbands, 
he calls us to that. To wives, Scripture says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now, let me tell you what, what God is not after in this portion of Scripture. Let me tell you what Paul is not after in this portion of Scripture. The Lord is not after a male-dominated, suffocating family unit. That's not what the Lord is after. And listen to me. This text has been used for that purpose. The Lord is not looking for wives who never have an opinion and who are weak and feeble. That's not what, what God is calling for. God is calling for strong men and strong women who play different roles equally. He's not for what so many in culture and even Christian culture have made it, right? Because it's not just now that we have in our society, you know, males who take this dominant position, they're going to be so suffocating and controlling of their families because of what scripture says. Now, now we've, we've had the equal effect where in, in culture we have wives who are now the controlling factor, right? The, the managing partner who will dictate and, and control. God is not looking for either of those. Actually, that was a good time to say amen. All right, no more. All right, I'm kidding. Listen to me say this. I, I got 53 daughters living in my house, okay? I don't want to raise weak women. I want strong women. I've got a son, a solo son. I don't want him to be a weak man. I want him to be strong. I want him to be godly. I want him to fulfill their purposes. I want him to fulfill their God-given roles to the best of their ability. Why? Not just so they'll look good for a pastor and for his family. I want it because I know it's what God has prescribed and is best for them. And I know that as they walk in obedience to the scripture, I know that there is going to be not only blessing in this life, but treasure in heaven abundantly. Because they have obeyed. Listen, we tried to like pit this thing again. That is not, listen to what God is after. In the same portion of scripture, this is what he's really after. He says, husbands and wives submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, husbands and wives, humble yourselves one to another. Honor one another care for one another, serve one another in the way you want them to serve you. You know, one of the most fascinating relational dynamics that we see in all of Scripture, it's so overlooked, it's the relationship between Jesus and John the Baptist. Listen, you realize the fundamental element that sealed their relationship together. Listen, again, you're talking about the two greatest men who ever walked the face of the planet. That's what Jesus said. Jesus was the greatest, and as John, he was the second greatest. No other man, no other men. These were the top two. Have you ever been in a meeting with two guys who, who like have, have like type A personalities? 
very, very difficult to make these things mesh together, right? Because even if this one makes a good decision and this one, you know, agrees with it, they're not going to agree with it. They're going to veer up into the. It's, it's very difficult working with people that, that carry a sense of power and a sense of authority. It's very, very difficult for those two worlds to kind of combine together. But do you know what, who was able to do that? Jesus and John. Do you know why they were able to do that? Because there was a mutual submission and there was a mutual humility and there was a mutual honor that both of them possessed. In Matthew 13, we have Jesus. He finds John in the, in the, in the waters of the Jordan and he goes to John and he says, John, I want to humble myself and submit myself unto you and I want you to baptize me in these waters. John, no. No, far be it from me, Lord. You should be baptizing me. John humbled, no, Lord, I'm not going to do that. You're too great. I honor you. I, I humble myself. I submit myself to you. You baptize me. And then Jesus steps in and he says, no, no, I understand what you're saying. I honor you so much, but please, I need you to do this for me. The most powerful men who ever walked the face of the planet worked together for one reason, a mutual submission a mutual honor, and a mutual humility that they had for one another. Listen to me. In our families, in, in our spousal relationships, that's what God's after. That's what he's after. That's what we should be after. Well, let's move away from that. Actually, we're done. No, I'm kidding. Number two. Number two. Who I am in Christ should impact me as a parent. Paul writes to the Ephesians again. He says, fathers, which can be, you know, it applies, it's applicable to mothers too. Do not exasperate your children. In other words, don't be controlling. Don't, you know, don't smother your, your children in, in fear that something bad's going to happen. Listen, bad things are going to happen. Okay, <laughs> let the kid breathe. He's saying don't exasperate your children. Right? Don't provoke them either. Don't, don't, you know, try to pick a fight with your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and in the instruction of the Lord. Listen, I get, I get so excited when I see young families. We have so many young families here that are just popping out babies left and right. It's amazing, right? And I get so excited because I know that, um, I know that who the parents are, they're going to raise their children in the ways of the Lord. And that's so incredibly exciting. But sometimes I get so burdened for parents because I know the voices that they are listening to from our secular culture. Don't let them eat this. Uh, they still have a pacifier? No, that's not. Hold on. They're how old and they're, they're not walking yet? No, there, there's something wrong. There's nothing wrong. Your kid is a child. That's the only thing that's wrong with that kid. Your kid is going to be fine, okay? So, so as a parent, I want to give you the freedom and permission to kind of take a step back and breathe. They're going to be fine. I promise. Listen to me. If God entrusted you with the seed of a child, he has entrusted you with the life of that child. Listen. It doesn't have to be anything, and, and we need to do the hard work. We need to be practical and all this kind of stuff. But, man, we've got to trust the Lord. At some point, we've got to trust God with their well-being. And we've got to be parents who are, who are willing to take a step back and say, Father, I, I don't understand it, but I trust you. And as I have trained them in the admonition and the training of the Lord, I am believing that you are going to secure their future. And I'm going to tell you this. Listen to me. We have the most amazing. This church is so incredibly blessed. 
I thank God for our pastor and his leadership and what he has assembled at this church. I'm going to tell you, we have like the greatest kids ministry, the, the most amazing youth ministry, the most amazing coming young adults ministry on the planet. Okay, we have incredible ministries that are here for our children. But I want to remind us that those were never intended to be the sources of their instruction and development in Christ. They're always meant to be supplements. They're meant to add to what parents are doing. And so in Christ, we have to look at Scripture and say, God has entrusted me with a child. What does Scripture say? How should I lead? How should I love? How should I inform? How should I mold them into the image of what God has called them to be? Number three, who I am as a child, or excuse me, who I am in Christ should impact me as a child. This goes for grandchildren, adult grandchildren, honor, obedience, uh, caring for parents in long-term situations. I'll tell you, I, I've got a pastor friend of mine in Florida, and he has, he has never, to my knowledge, he's never spoken at conferences, never carried amazing influence. He's never had a large church. He's been at the same church for like 30 years and, and, and all of this stuff. A lot of people may look at him and they may say, well, why didn't you do this? And why did you pass on this opportunity? And why didn't you allow this to happen? And they may, they may look at all these things. But when I look at his life, what I see is that he had an ailing mother who was in her 80s and 90s. And for the past five, seven years of his life, he let every opportunity pass by that would interfere with his care of his mother. He let things that he could have done and things that he could have achieved, he kind of just passed on them. Why? Because he understood what Scripture said about caring for the widows. He understood what Scripture said about caring for parents who cannot care for themselves. And I'm going to tell you, this world may look on him and we may give him a passing pat on the back and say, hey, man, you did good. I see you took care of your mom, whatever. That's awesome. But I'm going to tell you, the applause of heaven is louder than any voice of this earth for that man. And he will have massive treasure in heaven because of his faithfulness. Why? Not because he was this extraordinary human being. It's because he simply said, what do I do with my mom as she ails as a widow? What do I do with her? Lord, what do I do? And scripture clearly teaches him how to care for her in her latter days. And so as a child of God, it should influence me as a child. It should influence me as a sibling. It should influence me as a widow or a widower. It should impact me as an employee and an employer. It should impact me as a young man, as an old man, as a young woman, and as an old woman. I'm going to let you read the scriptures later, but, but let me submit something to you. Can you imagine what the Christian world would be like if all of our churches adopted this mentality that our older women are going to act as mothers to our young mamas and our young women? Not, not only are we going to love them, we're going to bless them. We're going to pour out the wisdom of the ages into their souls. We're going to encourage them to, to live a godly life, to walk in obedience to the Spirit, to love their families well. We're going to do that. And in the same way, the young mamas and young women, they look to the older with honor and, and blessing, and they receive all that's being poured out. And there's like this dual mentoring that's going on in this, this thing. Listen to me. That's what spiritual family is. 
That's what God has called us to be is the sons and daughters. We're called brothers and sisters in Christ, spiritual mothers, spiritual fathers, all this. Can you imagine if we had a culture like across the nation of older men who took the time and they humbled themselves to find young men and to pour their souls into them? Don't go that way. I've, I've gone that way. I had friends who went that way. Don't do this for the love of it. Let, let me pray for you. Let me impart to you. Let me, let me teach you what the ages have taught me. And the young men to stand back and say, I take it in. I receive, I hear, I listen. And not only that, I honor you for, for what you're doing for me. And I bless you for what you're doing for me. And, and I exalt you, not in an overly spiritual way, but, but I, I encourage you and I promote you more than I promote myself because you have been so good to me. You imagine if the young men and older men and young women and older women develop this type like across our nation, the world would change. The world would change. The enemy has done masterful work. At segregating and dividing us on so many different levels, genders and race, but also generationally. There's a pitting there against one another. I'm telling you, it's not the way of the Lord. It's not the way of the Lord. It doesn't matter if older generations don't think the way that we may think. And it doesn't matter if younger generations are loose cannons. It doesn't matter. We're called to right the ship, to help, not just criticize, but to help, to employ, to engage go along and to help them. And finally in this, I'm going to shut up because I can feel it. Um, <laughs> who I am in Christ should impact me as a citizen. In the book of Titus, we hear some instruction here. Where he says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. I'm going to ask you to stand with me real quick, so I'll stop talking. I want to tell you a story that I really hope will crystallize what, what I feel like the Lord's after in this day. At the, um, at the turn of the second century, it was about, um, about a generation after Jesus had, had risen, um, there was a new emperor. His name was Trajan. And like you know, very much like our political system right now, you have a president, then you have governors at different, in different areas. Uh, Trajan had different governors in different places throughout the empire. And he had this one governor, his, his name was Pliny the Younger, okay? His, his uncle was Pliny the Elder. Uh, this is Pliny the Younger. And um, he, was, uh, he was governor over a province. It was uh, 
probably around the area of uh, Turkey today, modern-day Turkey. It was in this area that he was kind of like the governor. Well, the emperor had gotten wind that, that there were these Christian movements that were just sweeping throughout the entire empire, you know. And he writes to all of his governors and he says, listen, this is what we got to do. I, I don't know what's going on with this Christianity movement, but we've got to make sure that we don't have an uprising on our hands and we don't need to squash this, you know, as they stand. And so I need you to figure out what's going on and kind of investigate and everything. And uh, Pliny the Younger receives this communication. And so Pliny then goes and he begins to investigate and he begins to uh, take people that are suspected Christians. He brings them in and uh, by, his own, by his own hand, he, he writes that he interrogated some, he, you know, he starved some, he imprisoned some for a period of time. He even admits in, in his letter back to the emperor that he executed two female Christians because of their witness. And um, he basically admits to the emperor uh, that what had happened is we had begun to investigate. We weren't making much headway. And as people found out that we were trying to investigate, uh, in the town square, somebody went and they had the scroll and they, they hammered it up. And it was just this list of dozens of people that were suspected Christians. And so Pliny the Younger went, he took it, he gave it to the men. And he said, hey, listen, go and find, find all these people, rally them together. And, you know, we're going we're gonna to investigate and do what we got to do to find out what's going on. So he writes all this to the emperor. The emperor receives it. And he, he writes back to Pliny and he's like, dude, that is not the way that we're going to do this. Right? You never, don't just take speculation of, you know, some anonymous letter in the town square, which, by the way, is great uh, advice for any of us, especially if you're a pastor. Never read anonymous letters, okay? Um, so, but Pliny had acted on this in ignorance, and the emperor, rightly so, and, and I honor him for this, but he writes back to Pliny, he says, man, that is not the way that we're going to do this. That, that's not the right way to handle this. We, we need to figure out a different way to find out what's going on with the Christians. So Pliny gets the communication, he gathers with his men, and what he decides to do, he says, this is what we're going to do. We're going we're to infiltrate as spies. I'm going to send you guys all over the province, and, and I need you just to find your way in the Christian movement, say what you got to say, lie if you got to, to be a part, and, and just go in, find out what's going on. And so as the spies go out and they do all this, <clears throat> report after report keep coming back into Pliny the Younger. And it's the same report, you know, different pieces, but, but it's pretty much the same message that's coming back again and again and again. And so Pliny pins his final letter to Trajan, the emperor, and he's writing to him. He says, you know, almighty emperor, like, uh, let me just tell you what, what we found, okay? When, when we have, you know, gotten uh, infiltrated these Christian sects, he said, this is kind of what we found. We found, uh, number one, they meet on a fixed day of the week. Okay, they meet every Sabbath. They, they meet on a fixed day of the week. They meet before the workday begins. So they, they meet before dawn, okay, as to not interfere with their work. Um, while they're there, they break bread together, which in our terms, they're, they're receiving the Lord's Supper together. They're breaking bread together. And they're singing songs to a man named Christ as if he were God, right? So they're meeting before dawn, so they don't interrupt their workflow. Uh, they're meeting on the Sabbath, they're breaking bread together, they're, they're singing songs. He says, but, but there's something even more that, that you need to understand. Every time that these groups meet, before they leave, they're binding themselves to an oath together. 
And it's not an oath to overthrow the empire. It's not an oath to defy you as emperor. It's, it's not an oath to break any law. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite of all that. They're making an oath that says we are committing and bonding ourselves that we are not going to do any wicked deeds this week. We're not going to commit fraud. We're not going to steal. We're not going to commit adultery. We're not going to lie. We're not going to be people who exaggerate truth. We're not going to be people who feed gossip. We're going to be people who pay our debts. We're going to be people who obey laws. And so Pliny's writing this, and, and at the end, of, he's, he's basically making a case, and he's saying, listen, this is all the things he do. And, and then at the end of it, he's basically saying, like, emperor, I say this with all due respect. All, I humble myself, I say it with all due respect. But are these really the people we want to be persecuting? He's like, not only are they compliant or complicit with our laws, they are actively trying to obey our laws. They're doing everything that they can not to do wrong. Are, are we sure, like, with all honor, with all respect, dear emperor, these may be the best citizens in the entire empire. Listen, these may be the best people. These may be the best husbands and the best wives and the best employees, the best law keepers. These may be the best people in the entire kingdom. Are we sure we want to go around knocking off heads? And that's what we're after. Listen, that's what the Lord is after. Because I'm going to tell you this, these people that lived in that era, we have nowhere close seen the level of threat levied against Christians in modern America that these people lived and slept under every single day of their lives. And even in the midst of that type of political and socioeconomic climate, even in the midst of all of that, they were still some of the best people that ever lived. Why? It's not because they, uh, you know, they got together and formed a committee. How can we do this? How can we do that? No, they got together and they said, what does scripture say that we should live? What, what does scripture say that we should do? What kind of husband should we be? What kind of children should we be? What kind of employees should we be? As we have people who are under us, how should we treat our employees? How should we treat the emperor? How should we treat the laws? And they simply just got back to it and they said, we've got to see what God says. Yeah. See, we live even in Christian culture sometimes. Augustine said this, he said, we need to treat scripture like scripture, as God speaking. We need to treat scripture like scripture, it's God speaking. Amen. Not a debatable word that was written in ancient text, but we need to treat it as God speaking, because I'm going to tell you this, listen to me, I'm, I'm, I'm done here. Our victory in these last days, and I'm telling you, I'm not a prophet, but I'm telling you, uh, we are facing incredibly uncertain days. And I'm not just talking about as Americans, I'm talking about even more specifically as Christians who live in this land. We are facing incredible uncertainty and difficulty that lay in the days ahead. 
And I just want to say this, it's not going to be some, you know, a professional politician who fixes things, and it's, it's not going to be, you know, some preacher who's super polished with everything he does. No, listen to me. It's going to be men and women of God whose names are never known, who choose to live by God's word. Why? Because they know who they are, they know who they aren't, and they choose to live accordingly to what God's called them to do. So this morning, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you, we've got a few minutes left. I'm going to ask our ministry team to go ahead and come into place really quickly, okay? And I want to pray for you here for a moment. And um, as we pray, I want to say this. Number one, if you have never come to faith in Christ Jesus, as I'm reading things about, you know, who you are and who you're not, man, please come find one of us. If, if the Spirit of God is, is pricking your heart, please come uh, to us. We want you to be a part of the spiritual family. Secondly, if, if you're here and you're just like, you know, man, all these things are like going off. I'm not sure how I'm doing here, how I'm doing here. Listen, we want to invite you to come and just to rest in the presence of God. You don't have to tell these men and women anything. You don't even have to go to them. They're, they're placed on the altar. You don't have to go. You don't have to talk to anybody if you don't want to. Because I, I, I want to, man, just a real tagline onto this. Let me just say this before I pray. All of this stuff, the obedience to Scripture is not, it's not just behavior modification, right? Because that will only last so long. You can only discipline yourself to do what's right for so long before you go off the rails. I'm speaking from experience, okay? We find our life and how we live as we stay connected to the vine as we stay connected to the presence of the Lord, as we stay connected to his word, that's where the strength is to live a godly life. And so if you want to come, you don't have to talk to anybody. You can just come and reconnect to the vine and ask God to give us strength to to do us all. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your precious, precious people. I fear so much, Lord, I've been misunderstood on a couple points, but I trust the spirit of the Lord to uh, bring understanding I want to pray today for my brothers and sisters, for all of us as mamas and daddies and children and grandchildren and grandparents and employers, employees, all the like, siblings. I just, I want to pray, Lord, that you will create in us, as you've already done here at this church, even at a higher level, a true sense of understanding who we are, who we're not, and and people who will live according to the scriptures to the best of our ability. So Lord, please touch every marriage. Please touch every family. Please touch every person. Please do a profound, powerful work. In the name of Jesus, amen, amen.